Well, welcome back to Redemption Church Online. I'm excited to be able to be here and bring a message to you today. Last week, Fred had finished up the sermon series throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And and before we move into our new sermon series, uh, like I said, I get I get to bring one more connecting sermon that will help us apply and understand the wisdom that we learned in Ecclesiastes. Now, now Ecclesiastes is a wisdom literature book, but Ecclesiastes is actually usually grouped in a, uh, one of three books, and that would be Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs, and Job. Now, Proverbs is, is a book that, that shows us that the battleground of life is this tension or this struggle between wisdom and folly. And Proverbs, no doubt, provides good instruction on how we should live our life and how that we should navigate our life according to wisdom. It shows us that, that, that we, should, we should evaluate our moral behaviors and that we should look and question our values. Throughout the Proverbs, there is a clear distinction that that righteousness will produce reward and a life of folly will produce turmoil or misery. And, and I'd like to touch upon a couple of those examples. In Proverbs 12, 21, it says, no disaster overcomes the righteous, but the wicked are full of misery. Again, in 21, 5, the plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit but anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. And one more in, in, in uh, Proverbs 16, 20, the one who understands a matter finds success and the one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. But if you were with us through the, the, the Ecclesiastes sermon, we, we had a different view. We've had a very pessimistic view of what life is actually like. We learned about the futility of life, as the author says, of life under the sun. And rather that we should just enjoy life. Or, or as Ecclesiastes would have put it, you know, just eat, drink, and be, be merry or be happy. Because life's futile. And throughout all Ecclesiastes, we get this, this very pessimistic view of life under the sun. For example, we had in, in, in Ecclesiastes 8.12, we learned that even when a sinner does evil a hundred times over again, he sometimes prolongs his life. And again in 8.14, there are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say this too is futile. Again, in 7.15, in my futile life, I've seen everything. The author says, someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness. And someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. And finally, 9.11, again under the sun, that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to them all. We see this, this injustice 
unfolding under the sun throughout Ecclesiastes. And, and in these three short examples, we see some staunch distinctions. Like the hard worker doesn't always profit and the righteous one isn't always happy. How do we reconcile these two pieces of wisdom literature? How are they connected? Do, do, we, do we then throw up our hands and say, I'm going to ignore this, this wisdom of Proverbs because Ecclesiastes says that, well, the reality of life under the sun is that it's futile and everybody, everything's up for chance. You know, there's a theme that, that Fred just ended with that both started in Ecclesiastes and ended in Ecclesiastes, but also runs through the book of Proverbs. And here are two, uh, just two examples of the connecting verses that are in both of these books. It says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And that goes along with Ecclesiastes, which Fred spoke about last week. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. Fear God. That is the connecting idea. That was the conclusion of wisdom that Fred spoke about last week. It's not like the fear of God to where, where you're scared of something. Though there are times that you should be scared of God's power, but it's the fear of, of being in awe, having respect and submission to God. It's like the fear that a child would have to his father. If my children do not fear me as their father, they lack respect. And, and our father-child relationship has become complacent or, or cavalier. And the same is true if we lack the fear of God in our lives. Then we lack awe, we lack reverence, we lack respect and submission to God, of which God requires. You know, the human temptation is to take the conclusion of Ecclesiastes and, and all the connecting themes in Proverbs and we try to live it out the best we can. And there is no doubt that is what we should do. And that is what we are called to do. But I think in our futile minds that, that we think on a, a works-based mentality. And, and, and when, when we start thinking like that, we have the tendency to say, if I do these things well, then I will always fall on the side of reward. And then when, when life throws us a curveball and difficult, futile times come, and then we can't reconcile what is happening to us because in our minds, we've tried so hard keeping the commandments and we ask ourselves, why? And this is where the book of Job comes in to help us unify the three wisdom books as a whole. Now, if you've never read the book of Job, 
I encourage you to do so, especially coming out of the Ecclesiastes series. If you're looking for a book to read, this would be a great read for you. But uh, we, I have to bring everybody up on speed. So if, if you've never read the book or if it's been a while since you have, I am going to take a few minutes and just summarize the book as a whole so that we have a thousand foot view of the book of Job. So if you're following along with the handout, we're going to start with the first point. And it's, it's going to hit right on chapter one, verse one. It's going to tell us the character of Job. It says, he was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And that's the fill in the blank. Job was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Before we even get in the story of Job, the author tells us the character of Job. This is not by mistake. And you can see the, the connection between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes here. Job feared God and he turned away from evil. Job feared God and kept the commandments. And not only does the author tell us this first thing in the book, but God himself attests to Job's character throughout the book of Job. So the story goes, Job was a righteous man who feared God and God had, had blessed him with, with great wealth, family, and possessions. And, and Job was being accused by Satan to God for only fearing God because of the things that he had in his life. And, and the accusation kind of went like this. Satan was saying to God, if you take away his stuff, I guarantee you that his worship and his, his faith in you will be eliminated. So God allows Satan to test Job. First, by taking away all of his children, all of his possessions, all of his livestock, everything that Job had accumulated, Satan took away. Satan was sure when these pleasures and these things were removed, he would curse God and he would eliminate worshiping him. And he would reveal God or uh, Job's faith as trite. And it would be revealed for what it was. No stuff, no worship. But Satan was very distraught because after Job lost everything, he fell to his knees and he worshiped God saying the commonly known Bible verse, and you may know this or heard it, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So Satan's irritated because of, of Job's faithfulness, goes back to God and says, well, God, yeah, the only reason that he's giving you worship is because any man will give up all his stuff to save his own life. So let me, let, me, let me strike his flesh and his bones and he surely will curse you. So God allowed him to afflict his body, but required that he spared his life. Now, I, I understand that a lot of these things that we're touching upon, you could do a whole sermon series on, but just, just hang with me here. So Satan, by, by God's approval, goes back to Job 
and afflicts his body with boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Boils that were so bad that he would take broken pottery and he would scratch them for relief. So bad that his wife encouraged him, would you just curse God and die already? But Job asks a question back to his wife and as a response, he says, should we only accept good from God and not adversity? Here we see surface level, some degree that, that Job understands what we've learned in Ecclesiastes about the futility of life under the sun. But as the story goes on, we see, we see Job on, on an emotional roller coaster ride as three friends try to come and counsel Job and they offer reasoning and, and rationale why God is punishing him. All the while, Job is, is making his claim of innocence against their accusations. We see a very black and white understanding of what they think God's justice should look like here on earth. His friends are, in a sense, taking the Proverbs and, and literally applying them to Job's life. The, the question and, and the, the account would kind of go, since he is being punished or since he is facing adversity, he must have brought this upon himself. Job deserves it because God is just. And if God is just, God would never pervert justice. It makes sense. And these are the two struggles that, that we're teasing out of the books so the back and forth between Job and his friends is the bulk of the book until Job demands God to show up and to give an answer for his suffering in spite of his righteous, God-fearing life. Remember, these, these claims that Job are making are not of his own. He was, he was respected in his community. Not only that, he was attested to, his character was attested to by God himself through the book. So Job was God-fearing and righteous, and he is demanding an answer. So God shows up. He shows up in a whirlwind, and he does not give him a direct answer, but rather he humbles Job and corrects his friends. And the exchange with God unfolds with, with God asking Job if he was there when he created the world. If, if he understood the intricacies of creation, if, if Job could complete the tasks that it takes to hold this universe together and on and on and on, God outlines the reason why, God, why Job has the lack of understanding. He says to Job, if you want to accuse me of injustice. Please counsel me on the things I know you have no idea how to comprehend. And Job takes this response and, and it makes him understand his place before a holy and powerful God. So Job gets an indirect answer 
that turns out to be a sufficient answer for Job. And it should be a sufficient answer for us as well. The book concludes with, with God putting Job and his friends in their rightful place by humbling them. And then he restores Job and blesses him with double of his previous possessions and blesses the last part of his life greater than the first. Now, I know that was a quick rundown of Job in a nutshell, and it's a thousand foot view, but it's important that we're all on the same page to understand where we're going in this sermon and, and, and to understand the wisdom literature as a whole. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Job's response to God in, in Job 42, 1 through six. Now this, this comes right after God gives Job a smackdown about him not being able to understand or comprehend the intricacies of creation and the amount of, of, of power that it would take to hold the universe in place. So in 42, one through six, it says, then Job replied to the Lord. So Job is speaking. I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Job says, surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. Job says, I heard, I had heard the reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. The age old question, why do good people suffer? Or as Ecclesiastes put it, why does the righteous gain what the evil deserve and the evil gain what the righteous deserve? Which brings us to point number two. Justice in the here and now is not as black and white as we may want it to be. You know, there was a time in my life when, when this became so evident and it was during a, a 10 day stay at Children's Hospital. My, my oldest son, Milo, was, was hospitalized as, as an infant with botulism. And you may or may not know what that is. We surely didn't know what it was. And, and we were told that there's about 100 cases a year in the United States. But basically, it's a toxin that is prevalent in a lot of things. And, and as adults, our gut, if we ingest it, just passes it and, and kills it. But when you're an infant, and you come into contact with that toxin, it does not pass and it does not get killed. Instead, it replicates in the body, binding to neurotransmitters in the body, blocking all motor function. So that is what Milo was in store for. So we started to know, notice a couple things that, that he was lacking, like his head movement was lacking. His, his motor functions were just failing. He was he was basically becoming a limp noodle. Anytime you held him, it was just like just dead weight. So we took him to the doctors and, and they sent us home with, with basically, I, I think your son is developing muscular dystrophy. Sometimes this 
this ailment takes, takes time to progress. As infants progress, these symptoms start coming out. And this is what I think your son is developing. And, and uh, he basically said, go home, love your son. Basically saying, go home, love your son, because your world is about to come down on you. And we'll get you in on, mon- on Monday morning into neurology and, and we'll get some kind of treatment plan going and you know, we'll get up to speed on, on, on what's gonna happen to your son. So we left there, not a good day at all. About 15 minutes after we left, the doctor called us and said, hey, we just, we just talked to neurology down at, down at Children's Hospital and, and they said, hey, we want you to send them to us immediately. Like, don't go back home. Don't pack a bag. Don't get the things that you need. Just get here. So we're like, oh my goodness, here we go. Off to the children's hospital we went. We turned around right on, right on 28 and we jetted down there. And they were waiting for us. For, and for a few days, as fast as we got in is as slow as it went for the first couple days. Um, first couple of days was a team of neurologists presenting their arguments for muscular dystrophy and a team of infectious disease doctors saying, no, this is, this is botulism. One uncurable and, and one curable. And Milo, he just, oh, the, the torment that this, this infant went through, he had neuro checks every 15, I think 12 to 15 minutes where they would come in, they would tap his knees, tap his arm, check reflexes, see what was, what was failing next. They would stick a uh, stick down his throat to make him gag because that is the, the, the last thing that would fail. And then he would suffocate and he, he wouldn't be able to nurse. So as, as time went on, we got, we got all the tests. We had the MRI test where they had to duct tape an infant to the MRI because if you've been in an MRI, you know why you wouldn't sit still in an MRI machine. They're loud. And then they had an EMG test, which I don't even know what this is, but they stick needles in your arms and then they measure the, 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 the quickness that electricity goes from one end to the other. And based on that speed, they can determine the diagnosis. And, and this is where we got the diagnosis of, of botulism. And it was the first confirmed EMG test that Children's Hospital had ever had for botulism. So they wanted to keep going. They're like, can we continue this test? And we're like, no way. This kid's screaming with needles out of his arms. We're not doing it. So we finally had an answer. And it was... The call was made shortly after that answer because Milo started losing his suck uh, reflex. He couldn't nurse, and they had to. They ordered finally the the antitoxin, which is made in one lab in California that needs a direct flight to Pennsylvania. So, long story short, he got the antitoxin. The replication stopped, and, and he was able to recover and and regain his motor skills over the next couple months. But, but there was a moment when, when we got that news and, and <clears throat> we knew he was, he was recovering and, and would be able to go home. And this will always stick with me. I went down to the cafeteria uh, and I was in the... I was in the elevator. And there was another family in there and, and 
they had this cute little bald-headed boy in a wagon. And, and if you've ever been to Children's Hospital, a wagon is a, is a cool way for a kid to travel throughout the hospital. So I can only assume that, that, that he had cancer. And he asked his parents a question. And it said, do I get to go home today, Mom? And unlike my son, his mom said, no, honey, your numbers are not good enough to go home. So in one hand, in that elevator, I had complete joy because my son was recovering and going home. But on the other hand, that family had complete sorrow because their child could not come home. That elevator ride, I will never forget. I left that elevator asking the question, why? Like so many of us do, why? This doesn't make sense. And, the, and looking back at that time in my life, Jocelyn and I had just started our journey coming to the Lord. Looking back, we did not have a saving relationship yet. There was no doubt in my mind that there were families there that day, fearing the Lord, obeying his commands better than we had done for the last 20 odd years. So who can explain it? Why? Romans 9:15 sheds some light. It's an, it's an Old Testament scripture that is quoted from Moses from God. And he says, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. And I will have complete compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Which brings us to our next point. The fact that Job was God-fearing did not exempt him from suffering in this world. If, if Job was so God-fearing, it still did not exempt him from the suffering in this world. If we can't understand God's wisdom and justice in the here and now, should we just give up because of life's futility? Should we, should we reject wisdom? No, because in Proverbs 1, 7, it says, the fool despises wisdom. But we need to understand that Proverbs 1, 7 says, fearing God is the beginning of knowledge or other translations, beginning of wisdom. The awe, the, the deep respect, the submission to God, the understanding that we will not understand everything is okay. But we have trust in the one who does. This is the beginning of wisdom. Start there. 
And then you will begin to understand the wisdom literature as a whole. And when life throws what appears to you as a curveball, something that's unjust, you'll have the comfort knowing, you'll have the wisdom knowing that it's, it's okay that I don't understand why. Because I know the who. And he is good. And he knows what's best for me. Even though it may not feel like it, it certainly didn't feel like it to Job. But he knew what was best for Job as well. The fact of the matter remains. And it was the answer that, that God gave to Job. You're on a need to know basis. And right now, you do not need to know. Nor could you understand it if you were to know. It's like the interest, intricacies of creation. You can't understand what I'm doing behind the scenes. Just like the story of my son compared to the boy in the elevator. Who can make sense of it? Maybe you can identify more with, with the boy in, your, in the elevator and your own personal circumstances. Maybe hearing my story, you're saying to yourself, yeah, I'm happy for you. You got your son back, but, but it still seems so unfair because I feel like the little boy who doesn't get to go home. Let me plead with you. I agree 100%. I was shown great mercy being able to take my son home. But if we want justice to play out in the black and white in this world, we must understand under those terms, we have no hope because Jesus would have never have died on the cross. No matter what injustice we face, the greatest injustice of the world is that the son of God was sent to this earth to be beaten, bruised, mocked, and murdered for sins, not his own, but rather my sins, and your sins. If we want justice to play out in the black and white, we have no reconciliation back to the Father through Jesus Christ. I know life seems unfair at times. I know that I personally can't even begin to comprehend some of the sufferings you all might have endured or are enduring. But God understands and he is with you and, he, and let him care for you. But the answer remains the same as it was to Job. Right now, you don't need to know what I'm doing. But here's the invitation. Fear God. Keep my commands. And trust that he knows what he is doing. But here's the catch. And, and I don't want you to miss this. 
the better that we follow the instructions of Proverbs will not give us the ultimate answer. The better that we are at keeping his commandments will not give us the ultimate answer. The fact that we don't understand should not make us disregard wisdom altogether. And the fact that we don't understand should not make us disregard following the commandments. But it's in that understanding of the incomprehensible knowledge of God that we start from and that we build up from. The lack of understanding does not negate the pursuit of wisdom nor God's commands. The lack of understanding does not negate the pursuit of wisdom nor God's commands. Don't let that take hold of your life. By God accusing or by Job accusing God of being unjust, he elevates himself to a position of higher understanding instead of what he says he is at the end of the verse. Dust and ashes. Throughout God's banter back and forth with Job, he's revealing his character and his power for Job to have assurance in who he is trusting in because he is God. He is the I am. He is the creator of everything. If he can create, if his character is that powerful, he can take care of us. When we search for reasons why, we simplify God. If we accuse God of injustice, we're saying we know better than he does. And it's okay to struggle. It's, Job did it through the entire book. If you're struggling because of the, the injustice that you're feeling, work it out. Go to him. Go to God just like Job did. Go to God in prayer. He will answer you when you seek him faithfully. But don't just accuse God of injustice because we do not know better than he does. God's justice on earth is complicated. Therefore, we must stand on, on what Fred ended with last week. In Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Here on earth, things may seem unjust for us, but know God's perfect justice will judge every act at the end. And again, don't miss this. If God's justice on earth was so black and white, Jesus Christ would have never have died on that cross because he had no sin and he was wrongfully accused on our behalf because of our sin and judgment fell on him instead of us to satisfy the eternal judgment that we each will face at the end at a price we can't pay. So if you're listening today and you have not believed and received Jesus Christ is your savior. It would be unfair of me 
not to tell you that there is, as Ecclesiastes puts it in the end, there is an eternal judgment that awaits at a price that you cannot pay no matter how good life is going now, no matter how bad life is going now, no matter what good deed you have done on the earth, no matter how good of a person you think you are compared to your neighbor or your spouse or your family member, because there is no one that is righteous and we are all wicked, sinful people and that sin needs to be judged. But the good news is that through the grace of God, through his complicated wisdom and justice that we cannot understand, Jesus Christ came down and lowered himself to to become human and to live among us here on earth. And he would be beaten and bruised and mocked and accused on your account because of your sins. And he did that for you to pay the debt that you cannot pay. And he satisfied that account with God for you. And if you would repent and believe and receive that Jesus is who he says he is, and you can ask him for forgiveness of your sins and you can have a glorious eternal life forever with him in heaven where there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears and the sufferings that you are enduring or have endured in this life, whatever they may be will be but a drop in the bucket compared to the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison that you will receive. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to to bring your message today. I pray that you use it to glorify yourself and to glorify your son. I pray for those who who do not know your son, that they will examine their hearts, that they will let the gospel message infiltrate their hearts to be broken and to understand your great love for them. And if I pray that they receive that message so that they too can be saved from the wickedness of this world and the things that, that feel like that are unjust to for, forever reign with you in eternal glory in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys for, for, for tuning in to Redemption Church Online. Let us continue in worship together.